Well, good morning, everyone. Let me add my word of welcome to all those gathered here and those who are joining us online. As Andrew mentioned, it's my final Sunday with you for quite some weeks as I take some leave. Uh, and so as I deliver this sermon, I've gone with a traditional Ryan Hurd sermon, lots of Bible quotations, something that you're all now very familiar with. So let me encourage you, whether you're at home or here, make sure you do have your Bibles with you. As I said, there will be quite a few readings throughout our time together this morning. And I want to thank Gary for taking the time to prepare and for reading those quite confronting passages. And they are confronting, aren't they? Even as Gary read them, perhaps that's one of the first times you've heard those or you've considered them many times in the past. They are confronting words. Wipe them out. Show them no mercy. They put to death all the men and women. Not one was left in the city of Ai. <clears throat> They're intended to be confronting words. I chose those passages because they are, by their very nature, confronting. And as Andrew mentioned at the beginning of our time together, we are doing a short sermon series on some of those tough concepts, some of those difficult passages. I can't believe the Bible says, show them no mercy. That was verse 2 of Deuteronomy 7, which Gary read for us. Put another way, how could a good and loving God command the ethnic cleansing of Canaan? How could a good and loving God instruct his people to commit genocide? How could a good and loving God not even spare the women and children? These are big questions. And my hope is that as we study the scriptures and the concepts found within them this morning, as we look at the biblical context of these passages, we will see that there are answers to these tough questions. There are, however, a couple of things that I do want to note and say up front before we get into our study. Firstly, what I'm going to present for you this morning is the framework of understanding that I have developed, not only in my preparation for this sermon, but in my own personal study and my own wrestling with these subjects over many years. It's not the only framework that seeks to answer these questions. I don't have the time or the expertise to present to you this morning all the various approaches that have been taken in an attempt to answer these. But I do encourage you, if you are interested in further reading, we would gladly give you some resources to undertake study in your own time. So if you find my framework less than satisfactory, or if you're just interested in seeing other viewpoints, please know that they are out there. Secondly, I want to acknowledge at the beginning of our time that throughout history, there have been numerous atrocities committed by people claiming to be acting under the instruction of God. And oftentimes they have used the passages that Gary read and many of the others that I will use this morning as a justification and proof of their claims. 
the Crusades undertaken in the Holy Land were justified by these passages. Those who undertook the mass execution of Rwandan people claimed that their support was found in these passages. The suppression of many black African people groups have found the same, and this is just to name a few. Now, whilst I understand that such tragedies are not ultimately outside the sovereign hand of God, I do not believe that they have any genuine scriptural backing. And it is wrong to suggest that they are either commanded or endorsed as part of God's prescribed will. His scriptures do not command these things. What we need to see first and foremost is that the Israelite-Canaanite wars are a unique event in a time and in a place. And they are certainly not set out as a pattern for Christian living. I also want to note that some of our considerations this morning may stretch your levels of comfort. They may press against preconceived ideas you have about who God is and what he does. That's okay though. That's why we're here. Being pushed and challenged and shaped is how we grow and mature. And so it is good that we are wrestling with these tough questions. So in an attempt to understand how God could instruct the Israelites to wipe out the Canaanites, to show them no mercy, we're going to consider this particular act under three different lenses this morning. That'll be our approach in our study. Lenses that are not made explicit in the passages that Gary read. Lenses that are not made clear in Joshua alone. To understand what these three lenses show us about this Canaanite genocide, we need to look to a wider study of the Bible. And that's what I'm hopefully going to lead you through in the next little while. The three lenses which were put down on your sermon outline are that of Promise, judgment, and lessons. Promise, judgment, lesson. Let's begin with the lens of promise. We, of course, talk about the land of Canaan as the promised land. So named because it was a land promised to Abraham. In your Bibles, please Open up to Genesis chapter 12. In Genesis chapter 12, as God makes a covenant with Abraham, as he calls him to be his own, we find our first reference to these events that would take place many, many years later. Genesis 12, reading from verse 1. The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went. As the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. 
he took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Abram travelled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morah in Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So Abraham built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. Friends, see here in this initial calling of Abram, the man whose name would change to Abraham. God promises that his descendants would inherit a land, the land of Canaan, the land currently occupied by the Canaanites. And here it's important to note that that land, though it is filled with Canaanites, is God's to give. The psalmist in Psalm 24 reminds us that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. And so the land of Canaan is very much God's land. And he is allowed to give it to whom he will. God promises that this land will belong to Abraham's descendants. And God, we know, is faithful. That is, he is true to his word. One of his characteristics is that he cannot lie. When God promises something we can rest assured that it will be fulfilled. And here in Genesis 12, he promises that Abraham's descendants will inherit Canaan. And this promise is reiterated time and time again throughout the book of Genesis. And again, it is stated in Exodus 6. If you have your Bibles, come now to Exodus 6, moving one book forward in our scriptures. We find the setting, Moses having just been called to be God's servant, to lead the Israelites out of Egypt. And he is in a discourse with God. And Yahweh, the name has just been revealed, Yahweh speaks to Moses in Exodus 6, reading from verse 6. God speaks and he says, Therefore say to the Israelites, I am Yahweh, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am Yahweh. God says here in his dialogue with Moses that I swore on oath that I would give this land to Abraham's descendants. I made the very same promise to Isaac, his son, and to Jacob, his son, and now to you, Moses, and your people, I restate this promise, I will give you the land of Canaan. 
the promise that God made on oath to Abraham cannot be undone. And though it has taken some years to be fulfilled, God has never strayed from that promise. Friends, I want you to see that this is the first side of the promise coin. It is a positive promise to Abraham and his descendants that the land would be theirs. And what we're going to do now is flip that coin and see the other side of it. The other side of the promised coin is actually a curse, a negative promise. And it's a curse that's made upon Canaan. Once more in your Bibles, I'm going to ask you to return to Genesis, this time to Genesis chapter 9. And you may note that this chapter, in fact, precedes Abraham's call. Genesis 9 has us in the setting of Noah's day. If you're familiar with the story, the whole world had filled with such sin that God eradicates it with a flood, sparing only Noah, his wife, their three sons, and their three daughters-in-law. And as Noah and his family finally make landfall once more, we read that Noah falls into a drunken stupor and his sons come upon him. In Genesis 9, reading from verse 20. Noah, a man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard. When he drank some of its wine, he became drunk and lay uncovered inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father naked and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it across their shoulders. Then they walked, backward, then they walked in backward and covered their father's naked body. Their faces were turned the other way, so they would not see their, fa- their father naked. When Noah awoke from his wine and found out what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan. The lowest of slaves will he be to his brothers. Now friends, this is a confusing passage and I almost didn't bring it up because it could add confusion. But it's important to see that here in this moment, Canaan is cursed by Noah. God's chosen person who was spared out of all others for his righteousness sake. It is a weird story. Ham sees his father naked and in a moment of mockery tells his brothers what has happened and they, with what dignity they can muster, cover Noah's nakedness. Now this does not excuse Noah's sin of becoming drunk. But what happens here is that Ham is highlighted as somehow shameful and sinful. And Noah, in response to this man's actions, calls down a curse. He calls it down on Canaan, Ham's son. And there is much speculation as to why he doesn't curse Ham himself. The best answer I can see is that at the beginning of chapter 9, God himself blesses Ham. And so it would not be fitting for Noah to curse that which God has blessed. And so Noah curses Canaan, Ham's youngest son 
calling that he will be the lowest of slaves and that he will be subdued by his brothers. Now there are many questions why this transpires the way it does, but it seems that in some sort of divine utterance, Noah curses Canaan. In chapter 10 of Genesis, from verse 15, we then find out this about Canaan. Canaan was the father of Sidon, his firstborn, and of the Hittites, Jebusites, Amorites, Girgashites, Hivites, Archites, Sinites, Arvidites, Zemurites, and Hamathites. Later, the Canaanite clans scattered, and the borders of Canaan reached from Sidon toward Girah, as far as Gaza, and then towards Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, and Zeboim, as far as Lasha. Some of those names may be familiar to you. Gary read them for us just a moment ago. These same peoples, this same land settled by the Canaanites is the land to which Israel would be instructed to show no mercy. Fulfilling the curse laid upon Canaan by Noah those many years before. So see our first lens, the lens of promise. It has the positive side, a blessing spoken to Abraham. And it has a negative side, a curse spoken to Canaan. In both cases, the moment of Israel's destruction of Canaan demonstrates that God is faithful. Those whom God has called blessed are indeed blessed in that moment. And those whom God has called cursed are indeed cursed in that moment. In both cases, God is faithful to his word. Our second lens is that of judgment. And Andrew touched on it in the beginning of our time and read from a psalm which speaks of God's righteousness in his judgment. Now we know that there are many attributes of God's perfection. We've considered his faithfulness. We know also that God is holy, that he is set apart from all else. There are none like him. God is righteous. He is completely devoid of sin. God is love, faithful to his chosen beloved. God is just, outworking his justice in the world. And in the story of the Canaanite destruction, it is his justice that is most clearly displayed. Again, in your Bibles, I want you to come back to Genesis 15, just a couple of pages over from where we are. In Genesis 15, Abram is again passing through Canaan, and God speaks promises to him. I'm in Genesis 15, where God restates this covenant. I'm going to read for you from verse 12. Genesis 15:12. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain 
that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. This, of course, turns out to be Egypt. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, that's Canaan, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants I give this land, from the wadi of Egypt to the great river the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Rephites, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. Those same lands, those same peoples. But notice there in verse 16 what God describes to Abram. He says, in the fourth generation, so four generations from now, your descendants, those promised ones, will come back here to the promised land and take it. And he gives a rationale as to why they need wait four generations. For the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. God, here in this moment, expresses patience. It might not be explicitly stated, but here we see the patience of God as he allows the Canaanites, the Amorites, it's an interchangeable term, as he allows them to deepen their sin. He could have judged them then and there. They were already sinners. But God allows four further generations of Canaan to grow. And the sin of Canaan did swell. The atrocities of the Canaanites are documented throughout the pages of our scriptures. Infant sacrifice, the worship of false gods, temple prostitution, the list goes on and on. Their sin is indeed bad. But friends, it's no worse than any other sin. It, like all sin, separates them from the holiness of God. And when Israel finally returns after those four generations, to take the land promised to them. What we see is that God has been patient. Not that they were okay until their sin had reached its full measure, but that God was displaying his mercy and awaiting his divine timing. And now, in accordance with his word, as Israel crosses the river and enters into Canaan, God chooses to display no longer his patience and his mercy, but his judgment and his wrath. The slaughter of the Canaanites is seen through Scripture as a righteous act of a holy God, a God who outpours his judgment, his wrath on those who thoroughly deserve it. We see similar examples of God pouring out his wrath in the flood of Noah's day, 
in the destruction of Egypt as he frees Israel from slavery, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah as he rains fire from heaven. We see the same as he destroys Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron who offer false worship to him. God can at any moment pour out his judgment on sinful people. And it is here in Canaan, as Israel enters in, that he displays his judgment of them. The lesson that we learn from this second lens is that God is righteous and justified in his actions. And I hope in some way you can see that this explains that question of God commanding murder. God is not endorsing Israel to murder the Canaanites. Rather, he is using Israel as an instrument, as a tool in his own hand to bring about his judgment. Israel in and of itself is actually fairly neutral in this story. They simply do what God commands. But why? Why would God insist that Israel, by their own hand, destroy Canaan? Why not simply wipe the Canaanites out by some other miraculous way, like the flood, like fire from heaven? And then let Israel take the empty land. Well, we do see some of that. The fall of Jericho is nothing less than the miraculous working of God as he brings about the crumbling of the city walls. But the reason God instructs Israel to undertake this task is, I believe, found in our third lens. It is a lesson. And there is lessons to be learned by various groups. The first lesson comes to the nations around Israel. By having Israel, that small nation, overthrow Canaan, God demonstrates his power and he demonstrates his favor. You see, at that point, the nations all believed that they were led by their various gods. And when nations waged war against nations, it was not so much the physical strength, the military prowess that mattered, how great the commander was or how brave the troops were. They understood that when armies fought, it was God versus God. If I win the battle, it's because my God is greater than your God. It's the ultimate spiritual, my dad can beat up your dad, if you like. Military victories displayed a God's strength. And so when God takes little, insignificant Israel out of the might of Egypt, through the wilderness and into Canaan, he warns all other nations of how great not they are, but how great he is. We see a similar mindset when David fights Goliath. Let me read this. You need not look it up. I trust many are familiar with the story. In 1 Samuel 17, David is defying Goliath. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, 
the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. And that's exactly what happens. It is the same mindset that plays out as Israel invades Canaan. There is a God in Israel, and he is not to be trifled with. That is the lesson to the surrounding nations. The second lesson goes to the people of Israel. It is a lesson about the seriousness of sin and how God's holy righteousness will tolerate it only so long. As God displays his judgment on Canaan, he warns the Israelites not to fall into the same idolatry and folly. Do not intermarry. Do not take on their worship practices. Do not do anything they do. Wipe it out entirely, lest you be tempted to sin. Lest you go the same way that Canaan went before you. It is a lesson for Israel itself that sin will not be treated lightly by God forever. That his time of judgment will come. And if you know the story of your Old Testament, you will know that sadly, Israel never learned that lesson. They did eventually go the same way as Canaan. Not destroyed, but exiled into the lands around them as they failed to heed the warnings of God time and time again. But there is a third group who learn a lesson from this story. And that group is us. The reader of the scriptures, the Christian these thousands of years later, still has much to learn. We have already seen God's faithfulness. We have already seen God's justice. So too here in this passage, we learn lessons. We see first his election. Come back to Deuteronomy chapter 7. Reading on just after Gary finished off. Deuteronomy 7, picking up from verse 7. God speaking to his people said, The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Now, therefore, that the Lord your God is God, he is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. But those who hate him, he will repay to their face by destruction. He will not be slow to repay to their faces those who hate him. Therefore, take care to follow the commands, decrees, and laws I give you today. In this passage, we see many of those concepts I've already covered. But notice that God says he chose Israel. He chose to set his affection on them, not because they were winsome, not because they were mighty, not because they were sinless, but simply because God chose to love them. 
and made a promise to Abraham as a result of that. We see that God has always chosen and called people to himself. The second lesson we learn is the true debt that sin earns. We know that the wage of sin is death. We speak about it often here. We know that sin is condemned by God and should be judged by God and will be dealt with by God. Here in the Canaanite eradication, we see how sin should truly be dealt with. How rightly we all should be condemned to that same fate. It is not our worth, not anything that we have merited, that we are still alive. It is only by God's mercy that he stays his hand from destroying every sinner. Though he has warned that that time will come. And so, friends, I would suggest that the final lesson we learn is a lesson of correction. You see, all too easily we read of these things, or these atrocities, as the world might say, are brought before us as some sort of demonstration as to why Christendom is mistaken. We consider them to be some sort of grand injustice that God commanded the death of everything living in Canaan. How could a loving God command genocide, the world asks? We'll see here that it is a faithful and a holy God commanding justice. The punishment of Canaan is not unwarranted. And so there is no injustice in this passage. God's rightful punishing of sin is what is on display. No, friends, if you want to know what injustice looks like in the Bible, it is not found here. It's found on the cross. That's the only time we truly see injustice in our Bibles. When a truly innocent man is punished and killed as a sinner. Jesus Christ, naked, beaten, bloodied, tortured, dying on a cross, is the only injustice found in our Bibles. It's the only punishment that is thoroughly undeserved. When God's wrath is poured out on one who never merited it. But in that moment of injustice, we also see the greatest demonstration of God's faithfulness as he establishes a new covenant. We see the greatest demonstration of his righteousness as sin is finally fully paid for. We see the ultimate demonstration of his strength as he conquers not a human power but death itself. We see the greatest demonstration of his election as Christ dies for those whom his Father has called. And the cross, my friends, that moment of injustice is also the wellspring of God's mercy where sinners like the Canaanites, sinners like me, sinners like you, can find forgiveness 
from a holy and rightful judge. Friends, in a moment we're going to share communion together. And I trust that as we do that this morning, you will be struck afresh by just what that symbolizes. To know that Christ bore the penalty of our sin, that he faced the righteous, holy, wrathful judgment of God in our place should strike us afresh. I'm going to pray now, and then we'll hear the words of a song reminding us of our holy God. But first, let's join together in prayer. Our Lord and Heavenly Father, your word presents for us so much of your nature. Your characteristics so clearly displayed in its pages. And whilst we by our nature tend to be drawn to your perfect love, to your grace, to your mercy, we are reminded this morning that you are also holy, righteous, just, that you will not tolerate sin unendingly, that you are the one who is able to destroy us, that you are the one who is right to judge us. Lord, we thank you that of all the stories contained in your Bible, injustice is only found poured out on Jesus Christ himself. As we prepare our hearts and minds to eat and drink in remembrance of that moment, we pray, Lord, that you would indeed be at work by your Spirit preparing us. Help us to know what it means to be forgiven. What a blessing it is to be the recipients of grace who have avoided your right and proper judgment. May we know afresh your characteristics and the joy of being found in your mercy. We ask it in Jesus' name.